Hello, my name is Rachel Tromelin. I'm an assistant professor of physical therapy at Louisiana State University. Today I'm on to host a podcast about persistent postural perceptual dizziness. We are really lucky today to have Dr. Neil Shepard and Janine Holmberg with us. I'll have them introduce themselves and then we'll get started on the questions. First, Neil, I'll have you introduce yourself. My name is Neil Shepard. I'm a consultant at the uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I'm an audiologist by training, although I've spent the last uh, basically 40 years working primarily with vestibular patients and a lot uh, with not only uh, assessment but also uh, treatment aspects and management of vestibular disorders. Janine? And I'm Janine Holmberg and I am the coordinator of balance rehab at the Intermountain here in the Balance Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I've been working with dizzy patients for the last uh, 20 plus years um, and working on expanding their treatments and, um, and lecture around the country just on the subjects of dizziness and vestibular rehab. Great. Well, thank you guys both for being with us today. I'm really excited to host this podcast on this disorder, which I think we've all sort of felt in our guts has existed for a while, but now it has a name and now it has some description to it. So let's start out with um, what is persistent postural perceptual dizziness and how did this evolve from a disorder called phobic postural vertigo? Well, to start with, let's let's drop let's clear up the confusion in that chronic subjective dizziness (CSD) and the three PD that you just named are exactly the same thing. It's just a name change being put forth by the uh, a group from the Barony Society um, in an effort to do international classification of vestibular disorders. So. They're, they're the, exactly the same thing. There's no difference between them. So either 3PD or um, SCD are, uh, is a disorder that, um, if you will go through the criteria for it in just a bit, but it really has its uh, origins. If you think about, you were saying that things, you felt like things have been around for a long time. It starts back about 150 years ago. So it has been around for a long time. Um, actually, there was multiple literature that described individuals that have chronic dizziness, a motion sensitivity, along with anxiety and a variety of phobic behaviors. And the original term, interestingly, was agoraphobia, which has transferred over to other things throughout the years. But it was because this was described for people that had these types of symptoms in open places, marketplaces primarily, busy marketplaces. Phobic postural vertigo was introduced in the German literature in uh, 1986 and uh, 10 years later into the English literature. And it was a syndrome that was defined as uh, postural dizziness with fluctuating unsteadiness provoked by environmental or social stimuli. So they gave examples like crossing bridges, going downstairs, downstairs, not upstairs, but going downstairs, um, walking in busy streets or walking in crowds. Um, they, typically this was triggered by either a vestibular disorder, medical illness, or other psychological stressors. 
Um, further studies found this to be actually the second most common disorder diagnosed in the German population behind benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, at least for adults. Um, and it was typically associated with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and vegetative uh, disturbances. And it was a reliable, it was found to be with studies, at least a reliable diagnosis. The development of what we're talking about today, chronic subjective dizziness, CSD, or the um, 3PD version of the name now, uh, actually started in the uh, early 2000s and was introduced with three specific features. And that was persistent non-vertiginous dizziness that was going on for greater than three months, hypersensitivity to self-motion, uh, external motion, visual surrounds, and a, um, a difficulty with what we call uh, precision visual tasks, such as reading. Uh, this definition wasn't, it didn't derive directly from phosphophobic vertigo, but was highly influenced by that, together with work from a couple of other groups looking at space motion phobias and Bronstein's work in England primarily with what's called visual vertigo. So that's where all this starts and comes from. Good. Um, and so speaking of the diagnostic criteria, what is the diagnostic criteria and what would be the main signs and symptoms of 3PD? The um, primary diagnostic criteria are still very much the same as they were when they were first introduced, other than with the now inclusion of uh, uh, postural involvement. And so they involve one, a persistent sensation of dizziness, unsteadiness uh, that would go on for three months. And this many times, even though we call it non-vertiginous, this many times will involve a sensation of self-motion, a sensation in their head of movement. But it's hard to define. They, they can't define the trajectory. So, but a sensation of movement in the head. So those are the primary symptoms, but they're persistent. They need to be there at least 50% of every day, if not 24-7, and go on like that for three months. Second, they develop um, a, a situation where the symptoms increase with postural changes. So typically when they go from lying to sitting, they'll notice more when they're sitting. When they go from sitting to standing and standing and walking, they'll, more, they'll notice them more when they're standing and walking. And then thirdly, the development of sensitivity to a variety of visual stimuli. And this usually involves itself with complex environments, stores, malls, places like that. Uh, visual patterns, especially when they're walking over surfaces with a variety of visual patterns. The focused visual tasks, which usually involve itself with reading, uh, especially reading on a computer when you're scrolling. Or nowadays, we ask about reading on a, oh, um, a, a a handheld device like your phone, things of that nature. They also will be sensitive to visual motion. If they're sitting still, not moving, but if they're watching other things move, that also will increase their symptoms. And lastly, head movements. So those are the criteria that we look for when we are thinking about the possibility of 
uh, them developing 3PD. Now, in terms of signs, really, in many cases, there aren't any. If you look at the laboratory studies that are done, VNGs, ENGs, things of that type, for the, a good percentage of these patients, they're all normal. When you test them in a formal way with postural control, um, with the devices that are out there, there now seems to be, when we can go back and look at large populations of these, patients that have more difficulty with simple tasks coming back into a relatively normal range when the task becomes more difficult. And those are many times referred to or have been characterized as aphysiologic, and yet we see that with these types of patients. When we look at um, the uh, laboratory studies that are, go along with the vestibular assessment, because probably good two-thirds of these patients develop this from a neurootologic uh, event that starts, uh, that starts things down the road. So something like vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, occasionally we'll run into patients with uh, Meniere's disease with this. You certainly can have findings on VNG, ENG. Usually they're all peripheral findings. They all have a tendency to um, uh, show um, perhaps a hypofunction, but of importance, they, these findings are also shown to be well compensated or fairly well compensated. We also find that one of the precipitating factors for many of this are people that start with spontaneous events secondary to migraine, and so they have diagnosed vestibular migraines. And vestibular migraines themselves can give you a lot of abnormalities on the ENG, VNG. The point is that there's no specific pattern to laboratory studies that is going to indicate this as a, a specific disorder. It really takes off from the history that you get from the patient's symptom. And I know from the patient perspective, from the patients um, that I've seen with this and chronic subjective dizziness, that can be very difficult for them to understand. Because I think, I think a lot of times physicians are looking for testable things they can see, abnormalities on VNG or abnormalities with postural control. And when they see nothing, they tell these patients, oh, well, you're fine and nothing's wrong with them. But the patients still say, well, I don't feel right and something's wrong with me and the doctor doesn't believe me or they feel like I'm making it up. And I think that only exacerbates things and makes the situation worse. Uh, you're definitely right. It, it certainly does do that. And they, and if, if they try to tell them that, oh, well, maybe you ought to see a psychiatrist, most of the patient's first reaction is, I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're just thinking it's all in my head. Well, it is in your head, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is the approach to this when you counsel patients with recognition of this, if it's done properly, they're very accepting. Yeah, and usually, and usually what I do, I know, unfortunately, there is a stigma against counseling, even though we all could agree that there should not be. And I usually will use some humor with my patients, and especially when I'm asking them in the interview, do you have any anxiety and depression? Instead of coming out and saying, well, do you have anxiety, depression, or other things, I'll say something like, you know, if I had a nickel for every patient who came in who was a little bit nervous or depressed or anxious with these symptoms, I could retire on an 
island at the age of 38 um, and never have to work again, that it's just so common. And have you noticed, and, and I can imagine how one day you're fine, the next day your world's spinning around you and you don't know what you did, that that must be really, really upsetting. And, and then I feel like that really lays a nice groundwork, not to that I'm saying you're crazy and, and there's nothing wrong with you and it's all in your head. Right. We, we approach it uh, very similarly in that um, the whole concept of fear and anxiety reaction is usually what sets up the parameters around which this develops. And there isn't anything more powerful in giving you a fear-anxiety reaction than the first time you have a disconnect with your environment because you're dizzy, because you're spinning things of that nature. That's why the majority of these seem to start first with a neurotologic insult of some type. And so with that, if those symptoms continue and they don't uh, reverse themselves, then they can become conditioned on it. So a conditioned situation is one that we use to an, uh, for analogy for this. Uh, the other one is the fact that when you have problems with dizziness, you go through a natural um, a defense mechanism where you start to immediately reduce the amount you'll let your body move and you start to pay way too much attention to what's going on visually around you. And if those don't reverse, then they come back to haunt you to help develop these types of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I do this a little bit. I feel like I tell the patients all the time and I tell my students that I kind of play Dr. Phil. Like it's all about changing the negative tape in your head and making it positive. That usually patients will associate a certain movement with symptoms and then that's negative because I get dizzy and dizziness is bad. But once I explain to them the mechanism of habituation, I'd actually say if you, know, if you do something and it makes you dizzy, instead of thinking it's bad, think, Rachel would be happy you just did an exercise and then that's what's going to help me to get better. So then they start to associate that dizziness symptom with positive. If I do this, this is something that I can control to make myself better. Right. Janine, do yeah, you have anything to add to this, Janine? As far as with respect to the diagnostic testing or? Uh, yeah, either diagnostic testing or managing some of these psychologic um, states. You know, um, you know what I what I see with um, my my CSD patients, my three PD patients, um, is that I do just have to go through, and very often the testing that's been done, I, I explain it to them. I very often explain just what you're talking about that incredible response that can happen with an acute vestibular problem, and that it's very definable that a good majority of people with definable inner ear problems go on to develop this. And I will often tell them, you know, 40, 60% of patients can develop this and it's just almost, I try to get them to view it as um, um, a complication to their healing, a, a known complication that could happen um, to, given the intensity of the initial provoking event um, and that, that fear and, that has developed and the behavioral conditioning that's, that's developed. Okay, good. So in um, all the difficulties um, with the fact that there's not a lot of testable signs and you're making the diagnosis a lot of times based on history, um, how does one make a differential diagnosis of 3PD and what are some um, disorders which may present similarly and how do we differentiate 3PD from some of those disorders? Well, the ones that, that get confused with this Interestingly enough, migraine, vestibular migraines get confused with this a lot, even though 
when people present with these persistent symptoms, if they have headaches, if they're definable, if they're definable migraineer, people associate, okay, the migraines are causing this. This is vestibular migraine. The definition of vestibular migraine is very different from the definition that we just went through for um, 3PD or CSD, in that vestibular migraines do not produce constant symptoms. Vestibular migraines produce episodes, spikes, events of, that are fairly discrete in nature, and in many cases can be on top of this, but that's not what's causing it. So that one clearly separates itself out. Um, mild debarkment is another one that can get confused with this because of the whole issue of most of the patients, if they describe emotion, they describe it as rocking, and they describe it as a persistent rocking. That's fine. That's what mild debarkment also typically gives you, except for the fact that your symptoms are usually significantly worse if you're sitting or lying still with maldetabarkment. Whereas for most of the patients that we have, they describe their symptoms as worsening as they go to stand and walk. Now, both groups certainly can have a uh, reduction in symptoms if they're in a moving vehicle. For the, for the 3PD CSD group, they're fine if they're in a moving vehicle as long as they're not looking out the side window and things of that nature, which also have a tendency to differentiate it. Beyond those, then you get into some issues of uh, health-focused anxiety, where that can come into play where it will produce symptoms for a patient. Health-focused anxiety is where the patient is hypervigilant about their entire health issues. They try to wrap everything up into one diagnosis and then try to relate what's happening to them back to the, the sensation of dizziness. That's a little hard to, to uh, tease out, but it is something that many times we think it's CSD and actually uh, individuals like Dr. Staub and some others that are well versed in this when they actually take a good psychological history come away with the fact that, nah, this is probably a health-focused anxiety or somatoform disorders. You can have people that will have somatoform disorders that sound very much like this. Those distinctions really need to be taken care of by a psychiatrist who knows those areas. So that one's not too critical because they overlap enough that if you think it's CSD, the treatment may still be the same. Medications that would use by a psychiatrist could be different. Okay. Speaking of medications, um, are there any medical interventions for this disorder? Yes. And in fact, what we do is when we talk to patients about treatment for this, we always tell them there are two components. One is the possibility for the use of medication. And those medications typically start out with uh, SNRIs, so the uh, selective uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Usually it's Effexor or venlafaxine is the one we go to first. Uh, we will use Cymbalta occasionally. In terms, of, if those don't have the, the effect we want or if the patients can't tolerate them, then we move into the SSRIs. And uh, Zoloft is one that we'll use. Prozac is one. Lexapro gets used occasionally. Um, Celexa and Paxil, we typically do not have a tendency to use those very often, but they can be. And so those 
our medications and we tell them that the whole purpose for the medication is to try to dampen the uh, symptoms that they're experiencing on a daily basis and start to try to break up the 24-7. But that's only one component. The other component is the use of physical therapy in order to try to drive down the sensitivities to the various visual stimuli and head movements that are feeding this disorder in the background. There are situations where, under review, the decision will be made, now let's just start with physical therapy. Um, there may not be a need for medication. If we can get the symptoms down from the standpoint of the sensitivities, the other may dwindle away. And if that's the case, then we don't have to worry about the medication. So we will do situations where we use physical therapy, not medication, but there's never the reverse. Whenever they're put on medication for this, there's always a physical therapy component. Yeah, and I know, and, and Janine can maybe comment to this, I know personally, you know, knowing how long it takes the SNRIs and the SSRIs to really work, that at least for, um, to ideally six, six week time frame to work, and that sometimes um, it's really hard to kind of be patient with the PT interventions to sort of give a chance for the medications to work. I don't know, Janine, if you have anything to add and some tips and what you would do in that period. As far as after we start the treatment? Yeah, like once, you know, if it's diagnosed and the medications are started, but they do take about four to six weeks to really ramp up and start working, um, how to kind of bide your time in the PT interventions um, until those medications really kick in? You know, there's, there's a huge amount that actually can and should be being done at that point. Um, these patients are kind of ramped up in their fight or flight system. They are not attending to balance cues in a correct way. And there's a huge amount that can be done getting patients to actually identify the amount of tension their fight or flight responses they're doing just even as they're standing. Um, getting them to be what we call proprioceptive aware. They very often, when your body goes into a um, defense mechanism, it tends to want to overutilize visual cues. Plus, that's something that the inner ear problem might have triggered to begin with, the over-reliance on visual cues. So we can start very, very early and very importantly, getting them to start attending to proprioceptive pathways, starting to dampen this visual dominance that's kind of feeding itself and getting them to be aware of what is the resources available for them to stay stable and how that's going to decrease, you know, the feeding of this disorder. And that's going to start leading into um, what they have to get to very quickly is the fact that the dizziness, the things that are causing them dizzy and dizziness, um, whether it be going into a grocery store, looking at something that's moving, if we can find a way to dose it appropriately, it's going to be the thing that's going to heal them. And that's a very, very important concept for them to start to understand. Because up to this point, everything that's made them dizzy, they've perceived as something that's bad that's going to make them worse. And so they start avoiding the very thing that's going to make them better. Um, and so that concept can be done extremely quickly and needs to be done extremely quickly to start getting that, that kind of change in, in attitude and how they're going to experience things and how that the dizziness could actually be something that's going to be something that if we could dose it right um, and if we could do it gradually enough and that they can link that with appropriate balance, awareness, and stability, they're going to be able to retrain themselves. And this, this powerful concept that this uh, learned behavior can be 
unlearned and that they can learn to um, start to get their balance and their motion perception to be normal. So, um, Janine, what items should be included in the physical therapy exam of a patient that you su suspect may have 3PD? So, so, number one, you have to realize that 3PD can be something that's a diagnosis of exclusion. So, even if you find a past history, like significant for BPPV, um, you have to be watching what I like to call what is driving their disability. You know, they may have be you know, discreetly, discreetly describing what sounds like BPV, and perhaps when you do your testing, you either find BPV that maybe accounts for their positional symptoms, but it may not account for the fact that they haven't been leaving their house for the last three months, that they haven't been doing their computer work because it's causing them dizziness. Um, and so we need to really, as Neil kind of stressed, we need to listen incredibly carefully to these patients. We need to listen to what is provoking their symptoms, how long is it lasting, what environments are provoking it, what is driving the disability, and can we make sure we're addressing not only from a treatment standpoint but from the patient's understanding what symptoms can be accounted for by the BPVD, what can be accounted for by something that goes beyond the ear. Um, and so when I examine a patient with this, number one, I need to make sure I'm checking very carefully for their tolerance so when I'm doing my normal Smith pursuit Zikads, not only am I looking for the quality of that, but I'm also looking for the tolerance of that. How much is that provoking symptoms? How long does it take for it to calm down? I'm going to need to, for sure, take a look at, you know, what is going on with dynamic visual acuity. And very often I'll find that their dynamic visual acuity is actually fairly normal. I mean, it's a one to two line drop, but yet they're sensitive to it. And if I see that their the dynamic visual acuity is normal, you know, I'm not going to be pushing a VOR times one paradigm really heavily. I'm going to be pushing things where I'm going to be addressing the fact that they didn't tolerate that test. And so addressing my exercises more from a habituation standpoint, meaning they're staying in control of their symptoms, they're giving a long enough rest period between things, they're staying intact with their balance control while they're doing this. And so it's a total different shift from what I do with my unilaterals where I'm pushing for the error signal, and I'm getting them to drive the speeds up higher, and I'm getting them to try to focus. And so it's a very different shift in what is the focus of the exercise, and, and I would for sure need to be doing something for motion sensitivity to, to document what exact motions are, are they sensitive to, how intense does it provoke, and how long does it last. You know, if you're watching them do it, are they disconnecting with their balance system at the same time? Are they going into a fight or flight? Is their breathing changing? Is there, you know, is there autonomic responses that are going on? And so a lot of it is they will do these motions and they'll disconnect. You'll see their balance decline. You'll see sway increase. You might even see a functional component or almost an aphysiologic type behavior when they start to do some of these things. And so it's a very different um, focus. Um, for sure, I would want to be quantifying on some kind of visual, either a visual analog scale or a subjective gradient scale how intense are the very specific different motions that are, that are causing them problems. So I want to quantify very specifically, is it horizontal, is it pitched, is it, you know, is it visual tasking, what is it, is it what environments, and I very often use the visual vertical, visual vertical, vertical analog scale, if I can say that correctly, um, and I can actually go through, because it's not only going to be what I provoke in, in my clinic, it's very often 
environmentally um, induced. So I'll want to quantify how bad are the grocery stores, how bad are escalators, how bad is driving, under what circumstance, um, how bad is it walking across the pattern floor on the carpet. Um, I'm going to be wanting to capture that and be able to monitor that for both my prescription of what I'm going to be exposing them to and then also being able to document their progress. And I can tell you one of the things we have to do as therapists is in a very systematic way show them evidence that what they're doing is making a difference, that when you experience this, when you focused on the correct thing, when you didn't go too long, um, you had a different outcome with what happened. Um, I'll definitely look at the dizziness handicap inventory, particularly some of the um, less motion-provoked ones, more the functional, emotional overlay that I'm looking at on the dizziness handicap inventory. Um, in my clinic, I'll also want to be looking at something like the hospital anxiety and depression scale, just, just some some measures to take a look at, is their system really ramped up in the anxiety field and into the depression field? Because we certainly know anxiety by itself can, can cause shifts in the way the sensory balance system is processing. Um, and so that all, all the stuff that you're going to do in therapy in the examination is going to lead you to a very specific exercise prescription um, and a very specific um, balance progression. Um, when I do the clinical test for sensory interaction balance or the foam and dome, um, or whether it's posturography, if you have the high tech, I'll be looking particularly at what's happening in conditions three and six. And even if I'm doing the low tech version, you know, there's a tendency right now to throw out condition three and six in the low tech version because we don't have good standardized ways of doing it. But I'll actually have things like a busy field that I'm going to be putting around them. I absolutely want to be looking for what is the difference between eyes closed and what's working and what's happening when I have visual conflict, because that's very often something that's going to be um, something that I'm going to need to address in specifically in the balance retraining. Okay, good. And besides some of the other outcome measures that you already mentioned, would there be any other that would be appropriate to use? One of the ones you were talking when you were talking about the measures, which came to mind, would be the motion sensitivity quotient. Yes, and that's that's exactly would be one of the key ones that you would need to do the motion sensitivity quotient. Um, because you need to define which motions are it, how intensity is, how intense is it, how long does it last, and so the MS, you know, the motion sensitivity quotient would probably be one of the bigger ones that needs to be addressed. And um, what I really liked about what you said was that you want these nice objective numbers that you can show the patients their change over time and that they're actually getting better and that they actually have some control over their symptoms. Yes, very, very much, and I, I, the feedback is priceless, you know, to show patients changes on posturography, to show patients the numbers of their MSQ, to show patients the changes in the vast um, intensities is going to be very, very powerful. Besides, becomes, oh, go for it, Dr. Shepard. Yeah, this becomes very important because the length of time that we're looking at potentially having an impact is extensively longer than you would with a, a uh, unilateral hypofunction. You mentioned that six weeks to ramp up the meds. Well, actually, we take more like two and a half months to get the meds up to a normal uh, 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 therapeutic dose because the, one of the problems is these specific meds that are used for helping to control this, they're all for anxiety and depression. And the first side effect when you start any of them is you increase anxiety. So you have to take it quite slow. So 
typically we talk about three to four months of a very slow progressive therapy program together with a very slow progressive uh, medication program in order before they actually start to see or appreciate any change. So because of that extensive period of time, being able to show change becomes quite important. Definitely. Um, besides some of the other PT interventions that you talked about, Janine, um, are there any other interventions that are beneficial for these patients? Um, yeah. I mean, so there would be a number of key ones that we usually start to utilize just even in the clinic. First treatments are very often something either done with an umbrella where they're actually viewing something that's moving or a striped cloth, sometimes uh, catching and throwing um, a ball. Uh, so very often we'll start with something that's sitting, that's very stable, and they have to start viewing this, this object. And we want to try to keep them under the point where they get too too much secondary symptoms or even the dizziness escalates too much. And in fact, kind of use the word, I want you to make this uncomfortable, but I was, I'm hoping that you can keep this going for maybe a minute or two and then we're going to build that up. Um, so it starts with just some visual tasking very often. Um, very quickly and, and even maybe on the first visit we go into store, store um, prescriptions where they're actually going into the stores um, and they're very often, they're counseled to kind of go for as much time until their symptoms elevate by two or three points on a, on a subjective rating scale, they take a rest break, just like you would do with habituation, settle the symptoms back down, go again for a second interval until your symptoms ramp up, um, and then rest it, and then work your way back out of the store. So you're kind of doing four different intervals, and then you're gradually going to be building this until we want, to, we want a goal that they can start being able to tolerate this environment for up to even 20 or 30 minutes. Um, so you're approaching it from kind of getting them to feel empowered to provoke some of the symptoms to a point where they can control them and de-escalate them and then gradually build that time to longer and longer. Um, we very often can also use what we call the VR cancellation or what's being called in the concussion literature kind of visual motion sensitivity with um, getting them to be able to view something and do a VR cancellation exercise. Again, with this very heavy focus on can they stay connected to their balance can they feel empowered to be able to de-escalate their symptoms at a, an appropriate time and make sure that the dose is never too heavy and that the postural demand is very carefully and slowly brought back up? I see too many times where vestibular therapists throw cushions, eyes closed, rapid head motions at these people, and they will lose them very, very quickly. Um, I, we will also move into fields where we start getting them to look at YouTube, busy visual environments, where, and a lot of my um, 3PD patients have a full YouTube list of progressively worse symptom um, viewing patterns where they have to view them, keeping their symptoms under control. And sometimes this can actually be used. If I can't get my patients directly into the store, this could actually be kind of a bridge to get them in, into the store where they're actually in their home. They're, they're showing, they have perfect um, in-tuneness with their balance and their perception, and they're letting themselves view these busy environments at progressively longer and longer, trying to feel the sense that their, you know, their breathing isn't changing, their muscle tension isn't changing, their focus on their, the calmness with their balance is not changing. Um, and so there's really this, you know, can you, and it's almost like this game, I get the patients to say, can you stay attentive to the calmness, to the, to the balance pathways that are intact while this vision is going in front of you, to the point where you're almost feeling like this is just blowing over you and it's not 
you're not assigning the significance and you're learning to almost distract from it and stay connected with your balance. So those would probably be, and then I, I do a lot of um, balance work where they're moving into more eyes closed um, work where they're just very, very comfortable with proprioceptive work. And I'm very, very sure, I'm very, very, I make sure that I don't take away ground cues too fast. I do not get them on cushions too soon. I do not give them narrowing their base of support too soon. Um, they're basically staying in positions where they're very in control, very in control and taking away the vision. And then, and as, as if I do something where I narrow their feet, meaning kind of a standard exercise where you narrow the feet into a tandem or heel-toe position as their eyes are closed, that goes very slowly with these patients because we're getting them to, we know that they have the response to do this. They just, they need to connect with it. They need to find it. They need to be confident with it. So it's developing the confidence with the balance skills as you start to take away the, the vision and then as they start to expose themselves to the desensitization with the vision. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Shepard, anything to add to that? No, she covered it very well in terms of the things we do. We, like she mentioned, with the store walking, we also do it with the umbrella. It, we actually use it in a format like habituation. So in some cases, if they can't tolerate, say, moving the umbrella for very long at all, we have them do the same thing they do in the store walking. They'll spin it just until they get a perceptual increase in their uh, symptoms, then stop, let it settle, and then do it again for two to four repetitions. So we hold to that. If they can do it longer, then we can actually do it by timing as opposed to a number of repetitions. Okay, great. So what are some appropriate physical therapy goals and what would be the time frame for the intervention and also the dosing of these interventions that you talked about? Um, so I, um, um, Neil was talking about how this is something that's going to be happening over very often three to six months at a minimum. Um, Dr. Staub, you know, has often quotes, has been quoted as saying to his patients, I, I'm, I want you to reclaim your life over the next year. As far as specifically what I'm doing is physical therapy, as far as the dosing, very often these patients are seen infrequently. Um, even if they live next door to the balance center, I would not want to see them any sooner than two to three weeks maybe, even between the interventions. So they have plenty of time to build a lot of habituation and, and control. And, and I, I want them focused on the fact that they're the ones that are making this better. What they do every day, how they allow themselves to expose themselves to emotions, how they're getting themselves back out. And so I want that sense that they are in control of this. And then they come to me to help them with the guidelines of how do I increase the intensity, how do I increase what's going on next. And so um, if they need a lot of proprioceptive work, meaning they're not, they're not connecting to their balance very quickly, sometimes I'll do a weekly appointment for a couple of weeks to get the initial prescription, but once the initial prescription is in place and they're giving me, they're able to start doing some good visual motion exposure, um, it should be um, every two to three weeks maybe at the most. Um, I tell them that I want to see them perhaps eight to 12 sessions over, eight to 12 times over the next six months. Um, and we may be done sooner than that, but I give them the expectation that this is going to get better over months of time, not days to weeks, um, and that this is something that, that, you know, their system has become sensitized to something and we have to go out this, you know, gradually so we keep the fight or flight system kind of out of the system. Um, the goals that I have for them is very often related to patient-specific goals. You know, are they going to be able to get back to the grocery stores? Can they get back to exposure to motion that, um, you know, and I may set something 
with respect to the posturography, meaning can they start um, showing better balance when their eyes are closed? Can they start showing better balance when they're exposed to visual motion? Um, but very often one of the goals is, you know, they will be able to go shopping um, if computer exposure is one of the things they don't do. So I try to keep it very patient-specific and, and with respect to their rating scales and everything with that. Okay. Um, Dr. Shepard, anything to add to that? No. He just had to step out. I'm <laughs> okay. Uh, I was just going to ask you anything um, else that you think is important to know that we didn't talk about already. I'm trying to think. I think it was covered really well um, as far as, you know, as, as far as the distinct dose, you know, as, as I think of, you know, habituation versus adaptation. You know, adaptation, you're always pushing for these one to two minute intervals. Um, habituation is in small sets. With these patients, um, we're very often looking to go for that one to two minute interval, but, but like Neil said so beautifully, it's within them always feeling controlled of their symptoms. Um, so I'm not pushing like with my unilateral neuritis, I'm pushing, you know, you've got to go for the one to two minutes, we've got to get that error signal. But with these patients, yes, I'm going to eventually working for them being in a visual motion exposure of 20 to 30 minutes, but that might be something that's six months away. You know, if I, you know, they're keeping their symptoms, basically they must control their symptoms, they must know how to de-escalate them, they must have a confidence that they're um, feeling this and gradually exposing it and, and taking control of getting longer and longer exposures. So um, the prescription is going to be very much that habituation, do the dose till it gets to a certain level, bring yourself back down, do that in three to five repetitions, three to five times a day, it, and then we will be doing something where we're moving them into um, being uncomfortable for longer, longer intervals until we can get them to that 20, 30 minute exposure, which is really my goal. You know, can I get them to where they can shop for 20 to 30 minutes? Can I get them, you know, being able to feel those, those environments for longer, longer intervals, which would be the end goal that I would want. And that um, I would want their posturography or this, you know, the sensory balance to be very normalized, that transitions from eyes open to eyes closed, um, transitions from, from firm to to soft surfaces, and then again into the vestibular environment where there's soft surface with eyes closed. Um, but a lot of that's going to be just as they can control their symptoms. So symptom management and this concept of de-escalating and surface orienting and proprioceptive uptraining um, is very heavy with these people. Um, and to try to get them to, you know, to really feel in tune with what, what their, um, I usually call it their assets. In fact, when I finish their examination, I very often give them a list of all the things that were normal in their exam. Did you realize your coordination's good? Did you realize you can feel the tuning fork through my, you know, you know, through my hand? Or, you know, did you realize that all of your vestibular testing is very normal? You have a very good ear. In fact, it might be kind of ramped up right now um, because your fight or flight system is is so keyed into motion. Um, and so, for them to feel this integrity, that it's almost like I give them a way and a reason for why they can and should heal. Because they have all these systems that are intact. They have so much that they haven't been tapping into. Um, and so they have a reason for why they can heal and get out of this. 
Okay, great. And one of the things I really liked what you said was your role more as coach and advisor and that the patient is um, doing yeah. most of their work on their own. And I think especially um, I came to vestibular rehab after being a therapist for maybe two to three years. And when you think about the general model that a lot of us were taught, it's like we're doing the hands-on and we're the ones in charge. But the way I see physical therapy in general moving is that we are going to move more to that um, consultant and coach role when you look at reimbursement and in the modern healthcare environment and everything that we do. And so I feel like vestibular therapists are certainly on the edge of this. Yeah, yes, I would agree. Okay, um, Dr. Shepard, anything to add? Any final thoughts of things we haven't talked about already that you think we should add? Well, the, the only thing is how well does it work? Do we have any data mm -hmm. to show that? Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point we have one preliminary paper that was just accepted to uh, Journal of Vestibular Research looking and it actually has some of the first data on how do these patients work with vestibular rehab and the results were positive from that. They found the physical therapy visits independent of the exercises, the physical therapy visits and the education quite productive. They did find a significant percentage of the patients did find a reduction in their um, visual sensitivities, um, improvement in postural control based on their own uh, perception of it um, of, as an improvement. And so it's just a start. This was with patients with and without comorbidities. So this was a very mixed and very, very uh, difficult group. They were all CSD, but they had other comorbidities. In general, we typically look at the fact that probably 60 to 80 percent of patients that go into this uh, program of medication and therapy uh, after about three to four months do uh, express the fact that their symptoms are reducing. There's a small group for whom they actually are gone. But that's very small. Um, but the important thing is that they're improving. Uh, but there is a group, there are a group of people out there for whom even though they look just like this because of their comorbidities and some other things going on, they are in that other 20 to 40 percent where even after six months we're still dealing with them. Okay, great. Well, thank you guys for um, this wonderful podcast. I think there are some very, lots of very valuable information for therapists out there um, working with these patients, and I would certainly tell everyone to keep a heads up for this paper in Journal of Vestibular Research. I think that'll be a great reference for people going forward. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks All right. so much, Rachel. Thank you guys again.